One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And on this week's New Statesman podcast, I talk about what it was like to be in Ireland over the abortion referendum weekend. And we talk in great, great length about the use and abuse of referendum. I'm kind of against them. Stephen's kind of for them. Who will win? There's only one way to find out. And that's listening to us talk about it for quite some time. So Stephen, I'm just back from Dublin, where I've been uh, over the weekend covering uh, the Irish referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution, which is now going to lead to a much more liberal abortion regime. The Taoiseach Leib Radcliffe is bringing in uh, legislation, hopefully by the end of the year. I have to say it was incredible. So there was all this sort of stuff beforehand, and, and Fracker himself had said, you know, we won't be triumphalist about it. I don't want any kind of celebrations. But actually, the mood really kind of was celebratory. I was in Dublin Castle where they announced the results, and they didn't have a big screen like they did with the gay marriage result. But people were just gathering there because it meant something really special to them, right? It just meant that, and that the campaign was so well directed that it really felt like well, actually what we were celebrating was the end of a lot of misery for women. And that's something that I think people really did feel that they could they could celebrate. What did it feel like from you watching it this end of the telescope? It was quite, it was, in, yeah, obviously I feel like we cover walls coming, going up quite a lot at <laughs> yeah. the moment. It was just quite inspiring. I mean, as with, and however limited the brief accord between North and South Korea proves to be, it was, it just felt quite uplifting uh, as a moment, partly because it actually was, despite all of the kind of talk about oh, the two islands, middle of, it was a unifying result, as with the equal marriage result. It was a kind of, um, yeah, and so it kind of felt very beautiful and inspiring. I think uh, that's one of the things that struck me when I talked to people who'd been out canvassing, is that I had been, I brought all my prejudices along from Brexit, right? And so they said, well, actually, when we've been out canvassing in rural areas, it's not been that much. It's not, because there was a lot of talk about, you know, it needs Dublin to carry this, right? And if you look at the 1983 referendum that brought in the Eighth Amendment, I think the only place that was against bringing it in was a couple of places in South Dublin. But the kind of the map is flipped entirely. So this time Donegal was the only county that voted um, against. And that's, you know, that's a, a, a very poor county, one that has very poor transport links with the um, the capital. It's one where you know, lots of the younger people have had to leave to find work, for example, all of those things that you would kind of say about kind of British seaside towns or that were quite, that were quite Brexity. Um, but, you know, to see other, you know, lots and lots of other places that were also voting like 59% in favour that you wouldn't necessarily have expected beforehand. And I think even the campaigners themselves had not really expected the kind of the scale of the victory. I think it was really interesting to me because I thought of what it told me 
about how you do politics, right, in a couple of different ways. And the first is about the way that they had, first of all, they had the Constitutional Convention in 2012, and then they had this um, Citizens' Assembly in 2016, where they actually had made a point of having these issues that are big social issues, ones that are really divisive and very much conscience issues, really aired. They heard all the evidence. You know, people were properly involved in the debate. And, you know, it was absolutely everywhere in Dublin and in some of the surrounds of Dublin that I, I went to, um, you know, every lamppost had like three posters on it. The number of people you saw with badges on, you know, the, the people were handing out stickers at the, the railway stations. And I know your island's a much smaller country, population I think 4.5 million, but it was it was a properly educated vote, right, I think, and a properly engaged vote. The interesting thing is, so obviously you wrote a kind of piece about what people can, can learn, campaigners can learn from it. And obviously there are always uh, lessons from winning campaigns and indeed lessons from defeated campaigns which don't necessarily do everything badly i think the interesting thing kind of from a from a, a distance you know from here in my desk is uh than actually not my desk because we're in our temporary podcast room this week feels a bit than one of the interesting differences between this referendum the brexit referendum but something it shares with uh, the scottish independence referendum is actually having that longer run-up and while i think um referenda are, to put it mildly, a suboptimal way of deciding human rights issues, uh, particularly minority issues. Um, and actually, I think that holds regardless of whether or not you think life begins at conception or not, because yeah. however, whatever you believe, whatever side you are of of, um, of the repeal question, you ultimately have a situation in which a majority is voting on the rights of a, of a minority. The, but that's an the, interesting the, point in itself about the minority point, because Farag came out on the day of the vote and said, to, you know, I want to say to the no campaigners, you know, this is, yeah, you haven't woken up in a completely different country. This is still the island. You know, it's just a bit more open and, in, and inclusive than it was before. And I think the contrast between that and David Cameron, well, I can't even really remember what David Cameron said in that, apart from like, bye, I'm off, smell you later speech. But just the kind of effort to be reassuring to people that they, you know, they were still respected, and their opinion was still respected, rather than the sort of jeering that I felt characterised the aftermath of the EU referendum. Well, I think, um, and this, yeah, obviously later on we're going to have a, a fight about whether or not uh, referenda are, in general, a useful tool or not. I quite like them for some things. I think the problem is, from a governance perspective, governments should not hold referenda where they do not support the change proposition, because there is no one who can really act as the unifying figure to reassure the the losing side that it's okay if the government... You know, no one else is the losing has, side. If the government yeah. is the losing side, if and you, particularly when you don't have in the United Kingdom a president who can who is mostly non-political, but has some mandate to come out and go. Yes, it's not like the Queen can come out afterwards and say, "Aren't we all coming together?" Because that's just not what she yeah. does at all. So there's no lever to kind of reunify uh, when the government doesn't support the change proposition. Whereas, I mean, okay, there are a variety of reasons why the AV referendum was less uh, acrimonious and less of an event in British public life than uh, the Brexit uh, vote was or the Scottish independence vote was. But if that had passed, then Nick Clegg is then empowered and has a kind of constitutional role which would allow him to go, don't worry, you haven't... Don't worry, we slightly country. changed the voting I mean, system, but it'll be like the sky hasn't fallen in. Yeah. And it is also partly about the difference between the, the temperament of Varadkar and, and, and of Cameron. I don't th- I don't think that people in the Scottish Labour and Scottish Liberal Democrat parties are right to put as much weight upon Cameron's speech the morning of the referendum in terms of the 
how well the S&P did in 2015. If you look at how well um, the, the the block did after the first um, referendum in Do you Tibet, mean when he came out and started talking about English votes for English yeah, laws? Yeah, well, he basically kind of, you know, Thursday, Thursday evening, babe, don't leave. Friday morning, I'll put the spoons in whatever damn drawer I like. <laughs> uh, yeah. Obviously, that didn't help. However, I think the blame it gets for the kind of yeah. uh, the politics of post-referendum Scotland is slightly overstated, but it definitely did did contribute. Um, but that's the thing is that, you know, covering this, and I, you know, I quite unashamedly obviously had to bring my own perspective to it. Um, there's obviously Irish writers who've written about it much better than I have, having been involved in the process throughout. But to see the difference between the way that the EU referendum was both prosecuted and then the, what followed it, and this was just absolutely astonishing to me. Can I say something else in the secrecy of the podcast room? Which is, uh, I was really impressed by the number of men at campaigning for yes. But most of all, I was really impressed by the fact that they appeared to be actually campaigning for yes, rather than trying to be in charge of the campaign for yes. And uh, I think that's really, really telling. Because when you're doing, f- and it wasn't really presented as a feminist campaign per se, if you see what I mean. Like it wasn't presented as a kind of, exclusionary campaign in a sense right it was very much always trying to be about like bringing as many people together as possible and building a kind of coalition which I think you can do much more easily when you're unified around one quite narrow proposition like I've obviously in the research for my book been um, working on the re- researching the stuff around the vote and the way the suffragettes you know who came from different classes some of them went full fash in the 30s some of them went to become communists and anarchists and and actually what you can do when you all just want one very narrow thing is put, kind of put that aside because you have one political priority but the campaign was it was it felt very very broad and like across age groups as well um and i think that's something i mean i've written in a piece about it in the new european this week but i don't again it's like the thing of blaming cameron i don't blame the remain campaign particularly for running a very narrow economy-based argument because with the length of campaign that they had to do they just didn't have time to do any education about are you really sure you want to leave Galileo are you really sure you want to like put radiotherapy drugs in danger are you really sure about the Irish border but it's kind of unavoidable that it was just not like it was just not lots of things were not aired as well as they could have been right yeah and let's park the referendum issue for part two and let's instead discuss uh, Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland yeah. So one of the signs, when I went to Dublin Castle on Saturday afternoon, people gathered in the courtyard, you know, a couple of hundred people there. One of the signs that someone was holding up was one, apart from one that said, I fancy Simon Harris, uh, who is the Irish health minister, who's had a bit of a kind of Damascene conversion on this stuff. Another one that just said, the North is next. And actually in the research for my book, again, sorry, not to keep plucking the book, but it slightly looms quite large in my mind. Um, I went over to talk to some Northern Irish abortion activists about what, what you know what's going on there. Um, and the thing that I hadn't really clocked until that point is, so the 1967 Abortion Act that was brought in in Britain, um, what it did is essentially carved out exemptions from the 1861 Offences Against the Person Act, which has the offence of essentially procuring an abortion or procuring a noxious substance for the purpose of having an abortion, and says, look, under these circumstances, actually, this is all okay, and you, you know, you have to have the signatures of two doctors, and there's stuff about licensed premises happening, and all this kind of stuff which was the kind of trade-off for getting what is, you know, globally quite a long time limit of 24 weeks. But the problem with that is that it's it, that, that 1967 Act was never implemented in, in Northern Ireland. 
And actually, weirdly, you've now got a situation where all the bits of the UK have got quite different regimes. So in Scotland, for example, they changed the licensing on the drugs that are used for early abortions so that you can take those uh, at home. Uh, and they've just they've just gone ahead and kind of done that. You know, now we've got a situation, thanks to Stella Creasy and her amendment last year, where Northern Irish women can travel to um, England and get paid for on NHS England. And that was always something that was in the Irish constitution as well. The, the right to travel was protected, which is one of the big arguments that they made about the fact that, you know, people say there's, you know, there's no abortion in Ireland. Well, there is actually. It's codified into our constitution that we've exported this issue to an, our, our next door country. So the battle now moves to the idea about whether or not it's installments power, really, this legislation, which it doesn't have to be if the focus is on the 1861 law, right? Well, yeah. I'm I mean, appealing so- that. So there are a couple of undercurrents. I agree. So in after the uh, Scottish referendum, Angela Eagle effectively fought a, a one-woman fight to prevent uh, abortion law being further devolved as part of the extra powers, which basically... Yeah, I remember that. Say, and she kind of... And I essentially agree with her argument. She banged her fists on the table. Uh, I know this is not been briefed by people to make her look good because the person who briefed it to me went this demented woman did this. And I kind of did that thing I always do when someone briefs something to me where I don't agree with them, which is go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how interesting. But she's right. Human rights should not be devolved. right? Regardless, and I think regardless of whether or not you think Scotland would be better off independent, it is suboptimal while you do have a political union to have human rights here, human rights there, and different, and different levels of human rights in, in various places. Also, crucially, Stormont is mothballed, it looks highly unlikely to be unmothballed anytime soon. Now, of course, the problem is, is the government really doesn't want to admit that direct rule is back. Yeah. Uh, partly because... Well, it's got all this stuff going on with civil servants trying to make decisions and then getting kind of judicial reviews against them, yeah. right? Because So like, who is minding the shop if, if there's no government, we're not having direct rule, and civil servants aren't really empowered to keep it ticking over is all a very fraught question. Yeah, and obviously one of the things that... Uh, podcast listeners uh, will be aware of just from these episodes and people who read my free morning email will be aware of and people who get the bonus email subscribe for people who are behind the yeah. paywall and looks at the week ahead will be aware of isn't the government's agenda is not so much thin as essentially non-existent now one of the reasons is the parliamentary majority but the other is that most of the big departments are just in this kind of brexit fog of, it, of having to do quite so much of so the kind of second you go, by the way, some ministers are going to have to start running Northern Ireland. At that point, the question is, does the ship of state just keel over? And so it's partly with Theresa May a reluctance to acknowledge the existence of um, of, of the fact that the you know, direct rule is is happening. It is secondly, I think, and this is in you know this is speculation or but it feels to me. So one, there have been two uh, interesting trends in the Conservative Party. That while it has become more liberal on equal marriage, it has actually become more anti-choice. I uh, think that's really interesting and relatively unremarked on. So one of the Tory vice chairs, Maria Caulfield, is one of a big proponent of reducing the time limit. Um, and there's several people in. Well, Maria Miller has in the past. You now she's chair of the Women and Equalities Committee. Um, is I think is, is 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 someone who would probably back reducing the time limits. Um, Nadine Doris has obviously been. I forgot Fiona, 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 come on, Fiona from the Tory backbenchers who brought in the sex selective um, amendment last year, which was a kind of backdoor restriction on, on abortions. At I event. know who you mean, Fiona Bruce. Fiona Bruce, who I always get confused with because she's not the one that does Antiques Roadshow. Oh, so I always get confused because for a long time you had Fiona Bruce fairly big into restricting reproductive rights and 
Fiona McTaggart, very big into extending reproductive rights, really hot on domestic violence as a political issue. And obviously, there is nothing more stressful than when you're writing about... Um, Fiona's. About Fiona's, knowing that... Then fundamentally, getting the you know, getting the wrong Fiona. This could not be a more wrong Fiona. Yeah, this is a bit like the Heidi Alexander Heidi Allen point, in which you just thought, uh, you know, there's always a. You're we all start... breathe the sigh of relief when one of the Heidi's left. Yeah, Barbara. you've got Heidi Al, and then really uh, under a stress condition on live con- live television, are you always 100 percent going to get the right one? Yeah. Um. Yeah, I agree with you. But then, so that's that's and and actually, Yvette Cooper was really instrumental in fighting back against that. But it was you know, there's there's lots of these little chips kind of kind of coming um at it. Jeremy Hunt is I'm pretty sure uh, a pro-lifer I think because he's cause his Christian background I think he's somebody who said his personal opinion is that it should be lower but you know he's not kind of wildly agitating about it so I think there is a kind of yeah there is a you know Jacob Rees-Mogg obviously is a massive fan of of children and people having children yeah and so for a variety of reasons it is a fairly painful issue to reopen to the Conservative Party partly because obviously the country is very much going in the opposite trajectory. Um, well, Northern Ireland, I think the polling that was looking at there was that the numbers were not dissimilar to the final results in the Irish referendum. Yeah. Um, so the public opinion there is definitely, it's not like this would be kind of crazy liberal England or Westminster imposing its kind of metropolitan elite values on people who didn't want them in Northern Ireland. Yeah, although, and again, to slightly, obviously we will have our, our, our referendum rammy in a bit, but um, <laughs> I did think, so another person who's been very instrumental in the cross-party alliance to defend reproductive rights, along with Yvette Cooper, Harriet Harman, and people like that on the Labour side is Sarah Wollaston, mm. who I have a great deal of time for, but I do not understand why she was like, oh, have a, you know, have a referendum on, on, uh, on, on abortion in Northern Ireland was something she said, one thing she suggested, she said, at least have a referendum on Twitter. Unite have also called for a, a referendum. I'm No, that's cuckoo. Because yeah. all that would do is, all the only thing you could hope for from that is that it would give you such a so overwhelming mandate that Arlene Foster would have to kind of go, okay, well, it turns out 70% or whatever it is, 65%, 60% want it. But she's not going to do that. I mean, she already knows that there's a majority in from the polling, but she's not, you know... She's her her job is to be leader of the DUP, and her, that's where her party is. But um, also, it's just yeah. I mean, also, it's fundamentally unnecessary, yeah, and, right? Yeah, because it's, it's also, not they yeah. don't have a written constitution which needs referendums to repeal it. But also, and this may be part of my continual effort to find Venn diagrams in which I'm the only one in the middle bit of the circle. But as as someone who was unhappy with the result of the 2016 uh, Brexit referendum and happy with the result of this referendum, ultimately Brexit is an issue far more suited to. Uh, referenda than uh, rights issues. It, it, it's just a really, um, you know, like no group should have to appeal to another for its rights. And again, I do think that does hold regardless of whether or not. Now, uh, you know, from a scientific perspective, I'm sorry, I simply do not buy the pro life argument. But if you do, again, I just don't see how, from a rights perspective, it can be appropriate for. Uh, for either fetuses or women to have to appeal to another group for their right, you know, to, you know, in a plebiscite for their rights. That just is, is not a good road to go down in, in, my, uh, in my view. 
No, and I think it's something that's, I, I mean, generally, I think this is an issue that probably if people aren't massively or haven't been massively aware of it until now, now is a very good time to get interested in it because some of the stuff that America is doing, obviously Trump immediately brought back in the global gag rule, which prevents uh, American funded NGOs from kind of talking about abortion, which is as is traditional for Republican presidents. But, you know, I think, um, you know, Mike Pence is an evangelical Christian. He's very, comes very much from that pro-life tradition. There are already restrictions going up. I mean, the way that's always happened in, America is it's always treated as a kind of ongoing running wedge issue right in the way it doesn't actually I don't think the GOP really wants it to be settled forever because it's so useful to them as a kind of rallying call what they do is they just keep putting restrictions in you keep you know asking for you know you have to have a transvaginal ultrasound you have to see the heartbeat on a thing you know you have to do this before all these hurdles that you have to jump constantly chipping away at provision and I think you know Poland has also got m- m- restrictive law you know I mean Poland's going in a pretty I would say a liberal direction generally um, and this is one evidence for it and I think that we're going to see a return of natalism across some of the more illiberal parts of the world and like and, and, and in Eastern Europe too because uh, already it's such a big far-right meme about you know um you know white you know white women aren't fulfilling their kind of reproductive duties that sort of weird anxiety that's all wrapped into that kind of masculinist anger in the far right but this is yeah I think this is an issue that we're probably gonna I hope that we're gonna hear a lot more about in a positive direction but certainly we will hear a lot more about it in one direction or another. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us! And the question we've been getting is basically, well, referendums, what are they good for? Well, except it's never been phrased like that, is it? It's always phrased in a kind of gotcha where it's like, oh, if you like referendums, why don't you just gay marry one? Like, it's got that kind of sort of like, so like you like them when they deliver the result you want. It's like, yeah, I'm also much happier the day after a general election that delivers the result I want. Is that like, it's not like you go, oh, I see you think elections are good now. <laughs> yeah. but So the, the thing, I, I mean, there are many things I find um, irksome about that. What I always think of is the why are the Lib Dems celebrating winning in a first past election hypocrites gambit. I find it irksome because I think one of the most annoying things in public life is people pretending to be stupider than they are. It's also quite annoying when people are really stupid. But the the other annoying thing is actually uh, from a kind of to put my constitutional nerd hat on. Do you um, ever take that hat off, Stephen? Let's be honest here. Yeah, good point. Um, to straighten my constitutional uh, nerd hat. Actually, the, the role and utility of referenda is actually quite an interesting question. And it's kind of a bit annoying that, um, you know, particularly when they are people who are notionally, as far as I can tell, meant to be serious academics, when quite an interesting debate, they kind of immediately come and take a dump in the pool, as it were. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just one of those things where it's just like, I mean, could you just not? You know, because... There was an absolutely magnificent... Um, 
exchange on Twitter on the day of the eighth referendum between a, a commentator who shall remain unnamed, who did a sort of like, isn't it weird that like women want abortion, feminists want abortions, yet they'll wear like baby on board signs on on the bus? Like, don't they? Work? So why do they think they're babies now, but sometimes they insist on them being called fetuses? And I think it was Dara O'Brien who just went like. Look, the Irish have been talking about this for years. Don't come along on the final day and insert your six-form debating points into this. And I was just like, that's sort of a bit how I feel about the that gotcha referendum point. You know, this was a massive day for women who'd spent months talking about, you know, often about their painful personal experiences. Lots of people who talked about you know, having a fatal fetal abnormality, you know, the idea that they were, they found you know, a baby they really wanted and they found it, you know, it actually it's only got a brainstem, like this baby is never going to be able to take a breath. And what do you do in that circumstance? And coming out and telling those stories. And then someone wanders up to go like, <laughs> excuse me, but I've got some <laughs> prejudices I'd like to add and makes me seem clever. It's just extremely annoying. Yeah. But our referendum's good now. So I think referenda in general are a useful uh, tool in some oh. circumstances, right? And I actually think, you know, kind of to air the opinion will have caused half our listeners to turn off in disgust again. So I actually think that Britain's relationship with the European Union is a good topic for a referenda because the essential trade-off, right, is you you sacrifice a considerable amount of sovereignty in order to um, achieve a variety of, of aims that, in my view, you cannot achieve uh, as a single unit and to have a massive trade dividend. And actually that trade-off between, well, that, that, that trade-off, that different trade-off between where you lose your sovereignty and how is an important topic that if you're going to have a referendum for seems like quite a a useful time to have one. There are many things which we can get into about the conduct and holding of the 2016 referendum, which were suboptimal. I think the two but... things that are most obvious about that is the timing. So is the first of all, the kind of David Cameron's like, well, hey, I've won my general election. I didn't expect to. Like, let's get this cracking out of the way and then I can get on with some old Cameroning, you know. And, and I think that just did not allow the time for anybody to properly have any discussion beforehand. You know, although I, I take the point, that I think that the very pro-Brexit printed press wouldn't have wanted to have any of those conversations anyway. Like if you had to pick between trade deals and the Good Friday Agreement, which one would you pick? Was never going to be something they would really really have wanted to touch. But yeah, and then compounded by then, the, as we said at the time, the madness of triggering Article 50 before you even knew, like where, you know, being able to tell your ass from your elbow, basically. Yeah. So um, I, I maybe there is a good Brexit referendum. There could have been a good Brexit referendum. This very definitely was not it. Well, yeah, because I think Although it is easy and indeed fun to mock pro-Brexit commentators when they go, oh, this isn't the Brexit I wanted. And although I don't really believe that you could do Brexit well, the circumstances of a government which didn't support it, which didn't therefore have a white paper, et cetera, et cetera, hold, you know, just the, a var- the variety of things that the government did not do in the run-up to the referendum outcome certainly make getting a, a positive outcome at the end of, at the end of, uh, of Brexit harder. However, the referendum in Ireland has just happened, and indeed the referenda on equal marriage, I think are both um, suboptimal uses of referenda, because I don't think referenda are an appropriate way to decide. So your your, your point is rights issues don't... My problem is that I think that they just, in a first-past-the-post majoritarian parliamentary system, I think they just jam a... They 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 are kind of the turd in the pool. Not that this is like the theme of this episode, but I think that they are. And everyone sort of has to swim around them. Who's going to get the net? 
You know, I just think they, you know, you're never going to get the pool really clean again. Well, so Tom Harris's point, which I'm not unsympathetic to, is that they are most effective when they are used to prove uh, something that we kind of know about public opinion already. So, uh, in the case of the devolved parliaments in in mm. uh, in, in 99, we knew that there were we knew that it was uh, the settled will uh, of of Scottish people to have a, a devolved parliament. And actually, the referendum was really just about confirming something that was widely Yeah, giving a sort of stamp to that. Yeah, I can see the point of that. Um, but but crucially, that was also a referendum where the two things that were going to happen in either, either event of either outcome were very clear. Maybe that's the key point to referenda that you need to understand. Because either you don't have a Scottish Parliament or you do and like that's you and people can go okay i know what each of those things means but in terms Fine. of say uh scottish independence right the the final destination of independent scotland is is by definition unknowable however from a self-determination perspective i cannot work out a a more effective way of gauging that mm. than a referendum now the but also, by voting yes in that, you're saying that Scottish independence is more important to you than any of the other little quibbles that might be along the way about the use of sterling, like about the Queen, all that kind of stuff. Right? And although they're saying that the thing that you want most and you're pre- prepared to sacrifice stuff for. Um, but I think that's the point about the, that's different again from the EU is about what you're, when you say leave the EU, what exactly you mean by which of the many superstructures and multinational well, agreements. Well, this is why it comes back mean. to the fact that there was a white paper in the Scottish independence referendum. Mm. There were many assumptions in it, and I think were. Slightly heroic, but uh, it was a huge, great big, bloody, great big book. I mean, I've got yeah. it was Scotland's yeah. future. Yeah, that's that's the right paper. Yeah. Whereas there obviously was not a white paper because, well, I think basically so many of the things around the referendum, both its outcome, its conduct, the trajectory, then I think it set us to an, uh, a, a particularly poor uh, version of Brexit. All come back to the original sin of the fact that David Cameron believed that he would be better off winning it quickly in 2016. Bosh it off, yeah. Yeah, rather than having a long run-up, up to the point which meant that there was never really a pro-referendum campaign in in Wales because politicians basically went from immediately going, right, so we've got our, our you know, we've got Welsh, Welsh Assembly elections, Oh right, now we're in the referendum campaign. Oh wait, now Wales has, has voted to leave. Now, I am, to be honest, deeply unconvinced that a better run referendum campaign would have changed the actual electoral outcome. But we certainly wouldn't then have been in this position where a year later people can go, I think it means going into the EEA. I think it means leaving the customs union. I think it means, you know. I think another thing that's different that has changed is now two years on, we are much better, or Facebook and Google are much more aware of their potential influence and a potential use of adverts on their platform. So both of them suspended with some restrictions um, campaigning. And I was talking to you know some of the canvassers who said, oh my God, until they did that, my Facebook feed was just constant, constant, constant. And there were lots of fears about particularly US pro-life groups putting in huge amounts of, of money. Now, you might say that's fair in the same way that the Yes campaign did loads of, you know, um, people allied to it, did lots of crowdfunders to get people home to vote. Um, but the fact that all of that advertising was happening, you know, potentially without anyone being able to, without any visibility, this has always been my problem about advertising on Facebook and Google is the lack of visibility and transparency around it and seeing how much is being spent, who's spending it. And the fact that they did that, I think 
not I don't know if it affected the outcome because it's always really impossible to say that and it was a very decisive victory so I don't think it could have changed that much but it's certainly in terms of the tenor of the campaign I think made it a lot better because you weren't getting random randomers basically jabbing their finger in to say the most inflammatory things possible about the slaughter of the unborn right yeah um, I think the thing is though with with the Brexit referendum and Facebook and because the the fear I have actually not just in politics but in general we are we are becoming more atomized as a society in terms of how we consume everything he said on a niche podcast for politically engaged people largely of a center left disposition and that does make account it makes it theoretically the the era in which Zach Goldsmith could run around you know kind of and with his jewelry liberal bit, yeah, um, yeah liberal bits of london going i love the environment and everyone goes, oh he seems like a nice guy and then run around to another bit like have you noticed Sadiq Khan is a scary Muslim? The fear is, do you end up in a situation in which you can get away with that because neither of those messages are ever seen by a shared group of people? Um, but the thing about the Brexit referendum is you did have, in plain sight, the Turks are coming, the Turks are coming, and out into the world, liberal Brexit. So I don't think the kind of filter bubble problem was real. Yeah, the, the Facebook thing was really, because people did that anyway um but i do think it is a a good use of referenda particularly when one of the main governing parties is irrevocably split on the issue now of course i don't think and so one of the reasons why i felt very strongly that it would have been a mistake for the labor party to match the referendum offer uh in 2015 is that the conservative party was divided about whether or not the eu or participation in the eu was a good thing now, although uh, a minority in the Labour Party believes participation in the EU is not a good thing, and obviously that minority is now considerably more influential and powerful within the Labour Party than it was in 2015, ultimately, I don't think parties should hold referenda in which they are certain of what the answer is, right? That's not an appropriate... Wait a minute, a minute ago, you said they should, they should do it as like a rubber stamp when they're following popular will. But it's, they're two slightly different issues, right? Because If your whole party agrees on something, then you should presumably just, it's easy to just put it in your manifesto and try and win a majority yeah, on it. Yeah, and you just go, well, look, do this. I think the difference between... Yes, that makes sense to me. Yeah. I get to your point. So yeah, it's, it's about Whereas whether or not... obviously Labour was, well... Labour wasn't quite... Un- Labour was almost entirely unified on, well, on the Scottish on Parliament. Oh, yeah. And, but, um, and, and on Brexit, it was only, what, about 12 MPs, really, who were properly leavers. Yeah, and so I just think... Plus Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, well, the thing is, I think if you if you believe that... Basically, if you believe that something is a central item of your macroeconomic policy, then you don't go, oh, shall we find out whether or not we're going to have to completely rewrite our macroeconomic policy, which is why... Yes, well, it's a bit like, shall we find out what Steve thinks about this and then we can kind of make the rest of our decisions yeah, based on that? it is a bit like kind of the rise of what I think of as kind of um, concernsism, which is this really effective way of parties avoiding actually com- making policy decisions, right? So this whole kind of like, Labour obviously does have a major uh, problem in small towns where it's just not doing as well in them but your immigration policy cannot be we have a problem in small towns it has to be our immigration policy is x and our electoral strategy goes through what we think our immigration policy should be well that was because the, yeah, actually but that's you never end the, up with a policy if you just go well there are concerns yeah that's the miniband years in a nutshell isn't it like this is a scary issue that people are really worried about but we don't have really anything to say to you about it but you are right to be worried about it so you're going to get the both 
worst of both worlds. Anyway, let's end the podcast by being um, happy about Irish um, campaigners and the victory they've achieved and Irish women who no longer have to travel. And um, we'll be returning to this subject because, uh, yeah, abortion in Northern Ireland is is sure to come up uh, again over the summer. And and I think there's going to be some movement around the domestic violence bill. So, yeah. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Helen Lewis. It's recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you've enjoyed the New Statesman podcast, give us some money by going behind our paywall. Just go to subscribe.newstatesman.com or to be honest, just search subscribe and New Statesman. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.